Welcome, Seekers of Truth, coming to you from the edge of the known universe, better known as the Granite State, home of Betty and Barney Hill. Through the magic of electronic alchemy, a portal to another dimension has opened. You are about to make a metaphysical connection. This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. Nick Redfern is the author of dozens of books on the topic of unexplained phenomenon. His work is the essential reading for all of us who are passionate about alien encounters, government conspiracies, cryptozoology, and lost civilizations. His book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations, was published in 2012. As we all know by now, Nick was right on the money when mainstream media reported in November of 2017 on those same secret programs by the United States military. In this episode 77 of The Metaphysical Connection, Walt Schnabel and my husband, Eric Renderking Fisk, welcome back Nick Redfern to talk about his latest book, The Slenderman Mysteries, An Internet Urban Legend Comes to Life. Stay tuned. So, um, I, I, was trying to, I was trying to determine how many books you actually have. I, I lost track of somewhere around 40. Because, yeah, you uh, I'd have to sort of check. Um, it's about 42, 43. Yeah, like. uh, that's kind of what, what I came up with. But um, you also have um, kind of books in other languages that have been adapted to um, Italian and uh, Hungarian, believe it or not. Um, so, so you're quite a, quite an internationally popular author, I guess. You yeah, it's say. kind of fun to see those uh, overseas editions and how they kind of, you know, look at the foreign writing. And uh, I mean, one of mine was translated in in Japan, another one in China, and it's sort of cool to, you know, I mean, I couldn't understand it, but I mean, it's cool to see the writing and how they actually with the Chinese they they read backwards from from the end yeah, of the book. Yeah, so, so that must be the book, so. that's kind of weird. And, and they have a, they have a different cultural viewpoint too. So, it, it, have you ever had any feedback from from foreign people? Uh, yeah, actually, um, I, I think sort of um, mainly sort of the European countries where they've been um, reprinted. Um, you know, for like Italy or Spain or wherever, right, they probably right. get sort of five or six emails a year from people who read them and might have a question or a story to to share. You know. Yeah, that's cool. That's that's that's. It's nice to know that your word is getting out there to different places. I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all important. Spread it, yeah. Look at the reviews on Amazon, and people are like, I, "I I thought his last book was great, but this one is even better." Um, and that's. I think that's where I would like to be able to start off saying, um, "I I thought that your book, uh, the 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 pyramids and the Pentagon." was really super fantastic. And I think it should be on oh, the book. It, it, it is. This it's is one of my favorite books on the paranormal. And then I got a hold of this one. And I will tell you right now, I, I was reading the book and listening to the Audible edition while I was driving. And there's something about this book that got under my skin, the topic that got under my skin. And even reading it in broad daylight kind of gave me the chills, gave me the willies. Mm. Um, 
how did you get in, in interested in the topic of the Slender Man? And who and what is the Slender Man for people who don't mm. know? Well, for people who don't know, uh, the Slender Man is a, a fictional and or started off as a fictional entity as part of a contest um, which was created in the summer of 2009 by the owners of a website called Something Awful. And they sort of opened this contest for people to come up with the, the creepiest, weirdest, supernatural fictional entity for the internet, you know, sort of like creating a modern day Bogerman kind of thing, uh, but for the internet. And, and it was meant just as entertainment, as a piece of fiction, and, and who could, you know, like I said, could come up with the the creepiest thing. And a lot of people um, entered this contest and um, uploaded artwork, drawings, paintings, photos, that kind of thing, of what they envisaged, you know, would be sort of the 21st century's equivalent of Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees, you know, or Freddy Krueger, that kind of thing. And one of the people who entered the contest uh, was a guy named Eric Knudsen. And Eric Knudsen is the man who created the Slender Man, the name, and the image of this um, sort of tall, skinny figure, which is sort of seven to nine feet tall, wears a black suit, uh, white shirt, black tie, and has these long spidery arms that go down to its knees and these weird tentacles coming out of its back and a face that lacks eyes, nose, mouth, ears, a lot. It's just like a faceless face. And Eric Knudsen um, uploaded a couple of um, Photoshop pictures to the, to the uh, Something Awful website where there were real pictures but with uh, images of the Slender Man sort of lurking in the background. And the, the Slender Man... Uh, creation for the for the contest was really took off big time and in no time at all there were blogs forums chat rooms wikipedia pages websites all in the name of the slender man and then there was this um a show called marble hornets which was like an online um series of episodes of a fictional story based on the slender man it's sort of kind of like a, a found footage type movie um, like a film crew, you know, following the, the story. Um, and so you had all this going on. And then a few months after that, something weird and unforeseen happened. What it was that although The Slender Man was purely created, uh, you know, as fiction, as entertainment for this contest, people several months later started to see The Slender Man in the real world. Um, the theory being that, uh, which I talk about in the book, in relation to what are called thought forms, the idea that if enough people believe in something and focus on it and obsess on it, the collective hive mind, if you like, of thousands and thousands of people can bring a fictional entity to life in a supernatural fashion. And it was that kind of crossover from fiction to when people started to um, you know, talk about it in the real world. That's sort of what really got my interest in it, and um, I started researching it further from there. Uh, Nick, do you, do you think that Newtson um, was maybe in some way chosen by by that entity, whatever that entity is that the Slender Man is, to bring him uh, sort of in the world through the through the internet, maybe? Or you know, that that kind of occurred to me while I was reading the book. I, I don't know. What do you think about that? notion that these kind of things are downloaded in some sense. Yeah. Well, I don't know so much if he was chosen, but what I what I would say is that 
what's particularly interesting is that although Eric Knudsen did create the, the name of the, um, you know, the Slender Man and also the image of it and the, sort of the backstory and everything else, the fact is that you can go back in history and find a lot of stories and entities which are quite like the Slender Man, but obviously not with that name. I mean, Germany, they have a, a legend of a creature known as Der Grossmann, which is like this tall, skinny, dangerous figure. And mm -hmm. you can find them all around the world. And um, several people I interviewed uh, for the book concluded that they, they felt that Eric Knudsen may have actually been sort of subconsciously inspired to a degree to come up with the imagery um, that he created. In other words, you know, it could be something that is in our minds, um, you know, like this archetypal evil figure kind of buried in everybody's subconscious and that every so often it gets kind of rebooted for a new generation and with a new name. And in other words, it's a case of what we imagine in our minds may not just be our imagination working, it could be some sort of deep-rooted subconscious fear, if you like, of what's out there, and that sometimes we kind of pick up on those images and we then create them, not realising that it's actually part of it coming from our subconscious rather than just something that we're creating, you know, off the cuff, so to speak. There is also another aspect of this, Nick, that I thought was really interesting because you talked about this, uh, the concept, um, uh, not of a totem, uh, there's another word that I'm, I'm thinking of, um, whereas it's like the more, the tapa, the more you think of, yeah. the more you think of the tapa, the more you give it emotional, spiritual, and thought energy that makes it more concrete here in the real world. And there's a lot of precedence in legend of, of this mm -hmm. occurring. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, well, tulpa, basically, it's a Tibetan word, uh, which the, the closest translation in English is thought form. And the concept is that if if you focus on anything, really, you know, any supernatural entity or, a, you know, a character or figure from folklore, mythology, history, and you focus your mind intently on it um, and you get your mind into sort of an altered state... And let's say that there are not just hundreds or thousands, but tens of thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of people doing the same thing. And certainly the Slender Man has that, that the phenomenon has that size of following, you know, amongst kids and teenagers. It's like an incredible number of people. Now, if you imagine all of those people, all those kids focusing on the Slender Man, obsessing on it, the, the theory is that that collective belief or want to believe that it exists, what happens is that, you know, they're all focusing on the, the black suit, the tentacles, the faceless face. Everybody's doing that. And then suddenly what happens is that, as you said, you have this phenomenon of a thought form or a tulpa where the human mind externalizes the, um, the image of the whichever entity it is and then it takes on some degree of self-awareness and in a very strange way comes to life. And more in a far more sinister fashion, what happens then is that the thought form, the tulpa, um, begins to take on its own existence and it becomes free of the creator or the creators in this case. And uh, to give you a couple of good examples, 
one from uh, the 1920s, a woman named Alexandra David Neal. And she was sort of like um, a female equivalent of Indiana Jones, a real-life Indiana Jones. And she travelled around the world having all sorts of adventures. And, um, and she lived to almost 101. And she spent a lot of time uh, in Tibet. And she was given this concept by some of her friends there, um, you know, the, the nature of the, the thought form, the, the, the Tulpa theory. And so she decided to try and create one of these things for herself. And what she focused on was sort of the, the Friar Tuck character from Robin Hood. Um, so this sort of jolly-looking uh, monk in sort of, you know, like a monk's outfit. And um, that's what she focused on. And she said, according to the teachings of, you know, what she was told, you know, she, she followed the rules, which was basically to, you know, to lay down, um, close your eyes, focus on the entity, and get yourself into an altered state, and really concentrate on trying to project it outwardly. And she said she had to do this literally for months. It wasn't like, you know, you just click your fingers and it's done. It took a long time of, you know, altered state type um, of um, meditation and focusing. And she said eventually that she started to see like a shimmery aspect of what looked like this this sort of ghostly supernatural monk that she'd created. And then over time, it became more and more, had more and more substance to it. And eventually she said that it was very close to, you know, looking like a human being. And she, it was just as she envisaged it, sort of like a large, you know, beaming face and um, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and then from there, uh, what happened is what very often happens is that the this character, this monk she created, began to change and it became sort of sly and it's sort of it's sort of welcoming grin or smile became like a like a leering um dangerous kind of smile and his his body changed. She she envisaged him like from Friar Tuck, you know, sort of a largish guy and she said that the Tolpa began to slim down and he had cheekbones and was changing and she realized that one of the hazards that she'd been warned about by her friends was that these thought forms, when they're created, they don't want to run the risk of being deconstructed by the by the human mind, and so then they try and attack the creator, so to speak. Now, that's just one example. One other example, which is a modern-day one, revolves around a comic book writer named Alan Moore. Now, Alan Moore created... Two, well, actually, a lot of comic book characters, but two that sort of really took off and which would turn into big hit movies. One was the character Constantine, which was turned into a 2005 movie with Keanu Reeves, which in the comic books, um, Constantine is like a, a demon hunter. And the other one, the, the, the more well-known one that um, Alan Moore also created, was the character Viva Vendetta, which was also turned into a big it's Hollywood movie a few years back. Um, now, when Alan Moore was sort of visualizing and creating the um, Constantine character, you know, he um, he sort of obviously because for the for the readers more than anything else, he wanted to sort of have a good visual imagery um, for um, for Constantine. Now. In the car, for the comic books, at least, the, the movie was different, but for the comic books, uh, Alan Moore actually based Constantine on Sting from the police. So he had sort of like blonde hair and um, 
spiky hair and Alan Moore sort of cre- created you know this or envisaged the image of how Constantine would look like his clothing his mannerisms his build everything else and he was spending you know quite a bit of time focusing on this and then one day um, Alan Moore was actually sitting in a restaurant in um, on the River Thames in London England and he said he's got a record of stating that all this that um, he suddenly saw the Constantine character that he created um, coming towards him in the restaurant again with like this creepy weird grin on his face that also um alexander david neal also um talked about and he was just kind of rooted to the spot in the restaurant didn't know what to do or do or should he do anything but he just watched as the constantine figure kind of walked past with him uh, walked past him with this sort of look on its face and then vanished and um and you know so that's that's another classic example of how you know, when you focus on something and you've got, um, you know, endless numbers of people reading the comic book, etc., etc., and then suddenly you have the the fictional entity come to life for the person who created it, in, the, in this case, Alan Moore. I think that what's amazing is that there's so many other directions where you can go with this. What other... Um, uh, people who dabble in magic part-time who are also artists and creators um because one of the things that you talk about is that alan moore can, calls him considers himself to be a magician how many other magicians out there who are artists are also creating topas well there's actually quite a few over the years and this revolves around something that's called chaos magic and um much of the the origins of um chaos magic uh, sort of go back to the works of people like um alistair crowley now, you know, when we're talking about magicians, we're not talking about, you know, some guy pulling a rabbit out of a hat or, you know, mm-hmm. sawing a hot girl on, in half on stage. You know, it's nothing like that. We're talking about people who, again, you know, got themselves into sort of ritualistic altered states of mind and, um, you know, performing rituals to open portals and doorways and to, and to manifest and, and work with fictional entities by bringing them forward into the real world, you know, kind of similar to the, the thought form type situation, in fact, very close to it. And certainly, uh, Alistair Crowley was one of the people who really kind of pioneered this angle of, you know, using magic as a means to achieve a particular goal. And, um, various other people over the years sort of followed in his path and as you rightly said alan moore himself is also you know somebody who's who's got a deep interest in this issue as well uh you know of using and working with, with magic um and so in other words you can look at the, the thought form the tolper angle and the chaos magic angle of people like alistair crowley and you see, we see a lot of parallels and sort of um, crossovers between these you know, different phenomena, but basically they all have the same kind of um, outcome, uh, which is something that never lived suddenly does live, and um, and it wants to keep having that life. And what's sort of more disturbing, particularly when you're dealing with sort of like an evil entity like the Slender Man, is that invariably the character of the thought form in the fictional world it follows over into the character of the 
thought form. In other words, if you create, if you're focusing on an evil entity in the fictional world and you create it in the form of a thought form, it's going to be evil. It's not going to have a nice character and just look like the evil version. No, it's like a carbon copy. So it really is kind of a case of a, you know, beware of what you I get it, you know. Yeah. I, Nick, Nick, are you are you, um, are you are you familiar with the concept or the or the thought pattern about archons? Um, <clears throat> we've we've talked about these entities. I guess there are kind of numerous times on the show, and I don't know whether you had any uh, experience with, with these entities in your research. Um, basically, what they are, are are entities from another dimension that come into this dimension to sort of feed off fear. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like they, it's, it's almost like something that they, um, relish and, and they get power from. And what they do is they, they come into this dimension from, I guess, from another dimension and, and create fear in terms of, you know, these events where there's a, there's a lot of like in a mass shooting or something like that. Yeah. Um, where a lot of fear is created in, in, in the human condition, I guess you would say, um, and and I was wondering if perhaps maybe the Slender Man might sort of fit into that category in some sense. I don't know whether you had considered that or not, or or if that was something you were even familiar with. Is that is that yeah, something you've ever run across? Yeah, there's actually um, certain data that does push it down that way as well. You know, I'm sort of in the book. I talk about various theories because we don't really know what the answer is. But I mean, yes, yes. in relation to what you just said, there actually are some interesting parallels. For example, there are a number of people who've talked about sort of waking up in the middle of the night and seeing the Slenderman sort of hovering over the bed, you know, and they're in sort of an altered uh, state, like sleep paralysis, where they're unable to move properly. But what's interesting is that after the experience where the slender man is gone, which sometimes, you know, he only manifests for like seconds, you know, but that's still enough to terrify the person. In other cases, you know, they're sort of pinned to the bed and unable to move for minutes. And this thing's just glaring at them. But what's interesting, as it relates to, to what you just said, a lot of the people who've had that experience, like, you know, in the early hours of the morning when they're in bed, when they've woken up later, sort of seven or eight o'clock or whatever in the morning, they've just felt totally wiped out and drained as if, mm-hmm. you know, they, as one one person said to me, you know, kind of like how a diabetic must feel if they'd sort of missed breakfast and lunch, you know, and then they, and dinner, and then they started to crash, you know, in a dangerous mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And another one described it as, um, you know, if you just sort of literally not eaten, you know, for anything for days and you were just weak and tired. And that is that gets reported a lot where people just feel totally drained of energy and they just, you know, walking from the bedroom to the living room is an effort. And after a couple of days, it goes away. But more than a few people who've had that experience have said, you know, they actually felt it was almost as if they were being sort of psychically eaten, almost, in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, there was a section, too, where you talked about um, Reverend Swope, um, and, and he actually stated in his, uh, you know, in speaking about this topic, that, um, that he feels that the Slender Man actually feeds on emotion and, and fear, yeah. which is pretty much is the same concept as you know as what you were talking about it's yeah, almost, it like, almost like a vampire kind of thing but 
but in an emotional sense, or you know, the energy sense, I guess, more than emotion. But um, so I, I I just find that very interesting. That that's. Uh, are you familiar with the archons, or is that something that, um, that you well, have the only reason I didn't put anything in about that was mainly because, you know, I was limited to 60,000 words, which is yes, what new yeah. page books put their books right. out. Yeah. So, uh, but I probably could have made it like almost. Yeah, and you, you, you packed a lot into the 60,000 words, I can tell you. It's, it's a great read. I mean, it, oh, it's just a page turner. You know, I, I couldn't, I mean, I didn't have a hard copy, but I had an e-copy, but, you know, I would usually say I couldn't put it down, but I couldn't stop flipping the pages, you know. And that's so, the thing. Really, really well written, and it's, it's really a good Good and read, and and that's the thing about your your books, Nick, is that um, you have you have these emotional, intellectual hooks, and it was just like, look, I I know it's three o'clock in the morning, I know I have to get up, the next morning, I know I'm only going to get three hours worth of sleep, but I got to know how this ends and what what is really going on here, and one of the things that kept me up in the middle of the night. And again, in broad daylight, is that you make this really great case um, for explaining how maybe this, there's similarities between Slender Man and the Men in Black and, mm. and other entities. And one of the things that you had yeah. said at least once or twice is that maybe Slender Man is, and we've covered this before to some extent, the Slender Man is really nothing more than a new name and a new face for an ancient evil. Yeah, I think there's actually a good evidence for that. I mean, I mentioned briefly earlier this German character, Der Grossmann, which is very much like the Slender Man, and which has actually been incorporated into sort of the like the mythos of the, uh, the the Slender Man today. But I mean, you can even go back and look at um, early folk tales, like for example, um, the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin, uh, which is a famous um, folk story about folk tale about. Um, a bunch of kids, well, actually dozens of kids who allegedly vanished from this town of Hamelin in Germany centuries ago. And they were supposedly entranced and hypnotized by this tall, skinny figure who arrived in the town one day and then took the children away into the woods and then through this sort of portal into the mountains and they were never seen again. And um, you can make a good case that the Slender Man um, angle and the um, Pied Piper of Hamelin story are eerily similar. And so I think you're right that um, even if somebody creates something like the Slender Man out of their imagination, it doesn't mean that there aren't these sort of archetypal images floating around our subconscious um, that from time to time do kind of literally sort of reboot these things and so you know you have the slender man um created in 2009 by eric knudsen um if you look at uh, native american law they have their own equivalent and it's known as but with two names one's called the tall man spirit and the other one's called um walking sam and walking sam is also like a tall dangerous figure that um can provoke death and disaster so, again, I think, you know, for some reason, we all have that kind of image somehow deeply embedded in our subconscious. And sometimes it comes out in the world of fiction. And unknowingly, we think we're just creating it from our mind, not realizing that it could already be in there, just being ready to be woken up, you know.
I, I'm, I'm also interested in um, the fact that the Slender Man seems to be using the Internet as its, um, I guess you could say, vehicle or, or the way yeah. that it's coming through into this reality. I guess you might want to classify it that way. Um, and, and also it seems to appeal to, just as with the Pied Piper of Hamlet, as you were saying, there were children involved. Um, <clears throat> which was kind of the downside of the Pied Piper. You know, he got rid of the rats and then he took the children because he didn't get paid. Right. But, um, but this, this Slender Man image seems to resonate with, with young, young kids. And, and, and I was wondering if you have a spin on that. Why? I mean, do, are, are younger children more vulnerable um, psychologically or are they, they pure in spirit um, so that, um, he's able to impact them more in, in some sense. Um, I, I know my my own personal experience with the Slender Man was was kind of limited to the to the national headlines about the two girls that um, yeah you know that had had an issue with their friend. Um, I, I don't know how much you want to get into the book, but um, what, what do you think about that? Why do you think this, this this seems to resonate with younger younger kids in particular? Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that the, the primary audience, the overwhelming audience for The Slender Man is sort of kids, probably like sort of 10, 11 upwards to late teens. Now, Three teens you know, and, and up, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there are actually a significant number of adults who've seen The Slender Man as well. But what you tend to find is that with the kids, they become kind of obsessed with it. It's like they're either mm-hmm. not into it or they're into it to such a degree that it kind of, in many cases, overwhelms them and becomes their sort of primary obsession, so to speak. And uh, and an obsession is actually an accurate word to use because you do find so many occasions with kids where they just don't have, you know, a casual interest in the Slenderman phenomenon. It It really does take over their lives. And I think part of it is you know, that sort of impressionable mind situation and the fact that, you know, like when we're all kids, all of us are kids and particularly when you're young kids, you know, your mind is wide open. That's why kids all around the world, you know, it doesn't matter what culture or country, you know, little kids are always frightened of what's under the bed or what's in the closet. You know, it's not something that's just relevant to one country, you know, it's, it's because, and it's because when you're that young, you know, the mind can potentially believe in anything, you know, there's monsters under the bed and it's perfectly normal to think that they might be under there, you know, at that age, um, you know, four or five or whatever. Um, but the more we look into the Slenderman phenomenon, we do see that, that the primary audience is kids. Now, you know, I think if you look at this in terms of in relation to the, the internet, there's an important aspect with all this, namely that the I guess for kids today, you know, their upbringing is very different to when we were kids. You know, um, for example, you'd go into the, you know, to the movies and see a, a Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Freddy Krueger, you know, or Halloween, Michael Myers, which would be, you know, you'd go and see the movie, you'd sort of talk about it, and then you'd forget about it. But with the Slender Man today and the internet, you know, there's instant access to countless websites, blogs, everything on the Slender Man, you know, online, which you didn't have, you know, when you'd say, go to the movies and watch a Michael Myers movie, um, you know, because there was no output for a massive um, 
sort of blanket of data on uh, on this phenomenon. But that's exactly what happens today with the Slender Man, that kids become obsessed because primarily the Slender Man is sort of a, a creature of the internet. You know, there have been a couple of other books written about it and a couple of um, fictional tales. But for the most part, you know, the Slender Man phenomenon is pretty much totally online. And of course, today's kids, you know, spend an extraordinary amount of their time online. Really? So I think that... (laughs) (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, that what happens is the fact that there is instant access to so much material on the Slender Man online, that this sucks people in as well. Now, there's also a supernatural aspect to the whole internet uh, angle of the Slender Man mystery. Um, for example, uh, one of the people I interviewed for the book was a woman named Lacey. Um, she, when I interviewed her, um, she was a trainee flight attendant and she recently became a like a full flight attendant. But she, by her own admission, um, she got heavily involved and obsessed with the Slender Man mystery pretty much not long after it all took off. And um, she was in her late teens then. And this was sort of been like 2010. She's like mid-20s now. And she, um, as I said, by her own admission, she got obsessed with the Slender Man um, issue. And to give you an example, you know, she told me how she printed literally dozens of uh, pieces of artwork off the internet, framed them in, in her apartment, um, you know, she was taking part in forums, chat rooms, uh, writing her own little stories, thinking about the Slender Man, etc., etc. And she said she got really into it deeply and um, to where she could not leave it alone. And what happened, she said on one occasion when she put her laptop into sleep mode, that she saw like the, it, very briefly, she saw the image of like the Slender Man's face you know, which essentially doesn't have a face. And that kind of, like, freaked her, you know, and she just wondered, was it a glitch or what was it, you know? And then on a second occasion, when she's put it into sleep mode, um, she saw, like, the spindly, spidery form of it. And then on the third occasion, um, she heard, like, a weird voice say, we're friends now. And that was sort of like the, the last straw for her. And she literally sort of, got rid of all her artwork, threw all her files out that she'd printed off the internet, um, just walked away from the whole thing. And and she even, uh, you mentioned um, Reverend um, Swope, Robin Swope earlier. Well, Robin wrote a book a few years back called uh, Slender Man from Fiction to Fact. And she actually had a copy of Robin's book. And and Lacey actually burned a copy of Robin's book. That's how how scared she became by having dug into this and she felt that to some degree either the internet was becoming self-aware and was projecting imagery of the slender man because it was picking up on her thoughts and what she was looking for on the internet or which an even more disturbing angle that she came to conclude was the idea that this supernatural slender man this thought form that we've created can literally kind of get itself into the internet and start manipulating people in an online situation. You know, it starts to uh, manipulate them from within the internet. I, I actually think that's, that's to me one of the scariest parts of the book is the fact that 
you know, the internet is, is sort of becoming an entity, yeah. a self-aware entity, kind of like when they talk about AI becoming self-aware, you know, that's when the tipping point is sort of, and, and if that's really happening, that the internet is becoming sort of a, <laughs> a living creature in, in essence and, and can yeah. do new things, you know, to me, that's, that's quite scary because, uh, you know, horror, to me, horror, and I'm a horror writer, so I studied horror quite a bit, and, and uh, your, your book clearly falls into that category because the, the true horror is really in the implication of it, you know, um, yeah. not necessarily the actuality of it, but the implication that the Internet is becoming something that, <laughs> you know, it is becoming maybe something that's not, not so good, you know, that is, yeah. is really maneuvering us in, in a lot of ways. And, and I think it is. Truthfully, when you think about it, um, so, and I think so that, it can also that's a big element. Of it. You know, it's a scary element. Oh, yeah. of the whole idea. You know? Well, it is because I mean, everybody, pretty much everybody, uses the internet, you know, one <laughs> way or yeah. another. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of become a slave to it, and kind of on a similar path to that. You know, the idea of the internet becoming self-aware. There's a another angle I talk about in the book. You know, this idea of are you know, we living in a, like a real matrix? Or something oh, yeah. similar yeah. to the Matrix, you know, that idea of reality may not be what it appears to be. And I mean, if you look at movies like um, The Matrix and also Dark City, which came out just before The Matrix and which, you know, has a lot of parallels to it as well, you know, you have in both movies sort of creepy men in black suits. You know, in, in The Matrix movies, you have what are called the agents, which are these men in black type characters that get inserted into The Matrix like as a program, um, when people get too close to the, the truth of what the world really is. And then in Dark City, you've got these, again, sort of classic men in black types who alter reality. And, um, and you know, when you look at it like that and how occasionally, you know, weird things happen, like just bizarre synchronicities, you know, which suggest to a degree, you know, that we... We're not sort of, you know, we don't have complete free will. You know, synchronicities often sort of manipulate us and push us down this path or that path. And you have to sometimes wonder, well, are we actually having free will or is it sort of, um, you know, an image of free will? Um, and if, if, it, if it's just an image and everything is sort of pre-planned, well, you know, are we programmed? You know, are we living in something similar to a matrix and uh, world and um, you know when you kind of put yourself into that mindset it, you know it's sort of really weird and creepy the idea that reality isn't what it seems to be but I mean a good example you know to sort of quote from from the matrix the first matrix movie you know when when Neo uh, the character Neo in, in the in the matrix movies he's basically you know said or he's told um, you know, have you ever had a dream which seemed so real that, um, you know, if you didn't wake up from it, you wouldn't have known it was a dream? You know, we've all had dreams like that where at the time it seems real and you wake up and you're like, oh, my God, thank God it was just a dream. No. <laughs> you know, we've all done that. I actually... But at the time, at the time, it was, seems like totally real. Now, if you imagine if you had that dream but you never woke up, you just continued to dream it or had to continue to dream period, you would naturally not know that you were dreaming. You would really think you were, you know, living out 
whatever the scenario is. And I think that's one of the interesting things about dreams is that we all dream different dreams, but we all have one thing in common, and that is at the time of the dream, we do think it's real. And the only the only reason you know it wasn't real is because you happened to wake up. So that's kind of like, you know, that, that concept. People say, well, there's no way we could be living in a dream world because we'd know. But we all go to bed at night and we fall into that trap of thinking it's real, you know, and um, until we find out it isn't. But if you don't find out, then, you know, that creates an entirely plausible sort of matrix scenario. Uh, interestingly enough, the, um, Morpheus, one of the characters in, yeah. in the Matrix, um, he's, a, he's actually, uh, Morpheus is the Greek god of dreams who delivers mm. messages from the gods to the mortal world. So um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm guessing they probably chose that name by intention. Yeah. It's um, not an accident. That, but, but that's very true about dreams. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I wake up from a dream and say, thank God, that's not was a dream. Well, because it <laughs> seems like reality when you're, yeah. You know, when, yeah. when you're involved in the dream, it's, it seems surreal. I think that I think the scary thing is, is that there are those dreams where I had one of those dreams, and I I had a visitation from my father who passed away this past June, and mm-hmm. it was like I and I said to um, my dad in my dream, Dad, you can't be here because you're dead, and he's like, Oh, 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 I'm sorry, am I am I interrupting something? I'll come back, and then that was the end of the dream. That was just so much like oh, my. Wow. Now there's a, it, but we can't help but wonder if somehow, like you said, is there something like um, something in the paranormal that is trying to communicate us in our most pure um, mental state, the dream state? Um, and do you think that there could be something in the paranormal talking to us through our collective unconscious, saying, "Hey, there's this danger." And they, it just mm. a, applied this image of the Slender Man to it. Yeah, I think I think that's you know entirely plausible. And you know, I mean, when you bring up sort of the dream state, I actually, do, I mean, sometimes you know we dream things, and it is just a dream. Particularly like when, for example, you dream about something that did happen in the day, and it was on your mind. You know that 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 clearly does happen. But sometimes, you know, um, dreams seem to be far beyond just dreams and I mean this this is has a tie-in with the Slenderman phenomenon because when Eric Knudsen created the Slenderman for the uh, Something Awful contest um, by his own admission he was inspired to create the Slenderman from various um, images and, uh, and stories and one of them was the work of H.P. Lovecraft yeah. now H.P. Lovecraft you know created all these fantastic stories of ancient cities and bizarre monsters and strange creatures and, you know, uh, otherworldly realms and things like this. And, uh, by you know, Lovecraft believed that, you know, he because he would often dream about these things when he was asleep at night, and they, he would actually incorporate those dreams and characters and creatures in his dreams. He would place them into his stories. Um, but there is sort of like a, a, a school of thought within... Lovecraft research fields where a a significant number of people believe that when Lovecraft was having his dreams and then writing, you know, then inserting these characters and creatures into his stories, you know, Lovecraft believed that he was just having, you know, very vivid dreams 
and it worked out right for him because he could write all these stories. But, as I said, there is this school of thought today that believes that Lovecraft actually wasn't dreaming as such, but he was literally kind of astrally travelling and and literally saw these different realms of existence, you know, in sort of multiple dimensions and etc. and saw these weird creatures like Cthulhu and um, Yogg-Sothoth and things like that. And to the point where he was literally sort of opening a door to other realms and saw these things and, and as I said, inserted them into his stories. Now, one of the things that... Lovecraft um, had nightmares about the creatures that he called the night gaunts and they would sort of appear in his bedroom at night and sort of take him high into the sky and then drop him back on the bed you know and he would suddenly wake up um, but the night gaunts were described as having heads with no faces which is probably where um, Eric Knudsen got the idea for the Slenderman having a blank face but what's interesting is that although uh, Lovecraft dreamed about the Nine Gaunts, his mother actually saw them. So in other words, you have Lovecraft creating... Oh, excuse, excuse me, not creating them. You have Lovecraft um, seeing them in his mind, and then you have something creating the Nine Gaunts in the real world to the extent that his own mother could see them. So again, we have this this crossover where you have this blurry situation where dreams may not just be dreams. We may actually, when we sleep, you know, sort of literally we actually travel into to other realms. And I mean, throughout history, you can find how many cultures, if not all cultures at one point or another, put a lot of stock in dreams and what they meant. You know, it weren't just dreams. There was some sort of significant message or, you know, that the person had literally been to the place they dreamed of, you know. It, that sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, <clears throat> I think, too, about like downloading things where yeah. sometimes yeah. Um, information or storylines or, or whatever it is that, you know, happens to come through um, are being sort of downloaded from another dimension or another area of existence, whatever whatever you want to call that. I don't know. Another dimension is my way of putting it for lack of a better yeah. term. But um, I, I think that may be what's going on. Um, I've even read about Stephen King saying that he's downloaded a lot of his stories, that, they're, that he doesn't really feel like they're things that he made up. They're, they're like things that came to him or were given to him or, or however you, yeah. want, uh, you know, put that. Um, and, and I think that some people are just sort of open to that for some reason. I know uh, Nick Tesla, who we've talked about a lot of times on our show, had the same thing where he was, he was given these inventions that, he, he sort of, that just sort of came to him. It was sort of a waking, dreaming kind of state that he was in at the time. So I, I think there's a lot to that, a lot of credibility to that. And, and Lovecraft certainly was, was, <laughs> he was, he came up with some very strange things, that's for sure. Are we also tapping into something like with what, right, with, um, with what Lovecraft did? Is, are we also like bringing in, other creatures from other dimensions, as as Walt would put it, are we actually bringing, um, you know, topas for life? Like, yeah. obviously, like if you create like a creature, like say, um, Freddy Krueger from Friday the Thirteenth, or um, 
Michael Myers or, or even Darth Vader. I'll just throw Darth Vader out there because um, and you have all these people who cosplay as these characters yeah. and you have all these people who obsess over these 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 characters. People get tattoos of these characters. We're creating all this imagery of all of this is are we going to reach a point where as like somehow just out of nowhere, you know, there's Freddy Krueger, you know, with, in Times Square. Um, and I know it sounds like a ridiculous question to an extent, but I mean, if if everything else that we've said is true, isn't that a logical conclusion that we are going to create something with the power of our minds? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the Slender Man is, is probably the most famous or infamous example of this. But I mean, you can look at other sort of strange entities and wonder if, you know, a similar thing's happening. I mean, for example, some people think um, the black-eyed children could be thought forms. You know, these the sort of creepy, pale-faced kids with these solid black eyes that knock on people's doors late at night and try and find a, a way in the house. You know, it, when you read these stories, a lot of them, they kind of read like almost as if the black-eyed kids are almost like a program, you know, it's like they're not fully self-aware of what they're doing or even why they do it. They just appear and, you know, they reel off the same words over and over again, regardless of which country or culture it is. Um, and I do sometimes wonder if, you know, the fascination that certainly it's not the size, you know, the same following as the uh, Slendman, but the black-eyed children angle is a hugely popular one as well. So I do sometimes wonder if there could be a thought-form angle there. And also, possibly, you know, with some of the things like the shadow people, um, and particularly when a lot of these entities, including the black-eyed children, seem to thrive on our energy levels, you know, and, um, you know, instilling fear and then bleeding us of that sort of high state of emotion and, you know, the negative chemicals running around our bodies, etc. You know, as if we're being used as a almost like in a parasitic way. Um, and that would tie in perfectly with some of the concepts for thought forms, that they need that kind of energy to to stay alive in their own odd way. So I think, I think a lot of the things that, you know, that we see and perceive as supernatural things, well, they are supernatural, but I think a lot of them could be created by us and they've become, to a degree, self-aware and they and the reason why we see them so much is because they have we have to see them for their benefit so to speak because they need us to survive you know it's kind of like their their equivalent of literally eating dinner or breakfast you know they need to be seen by us so they can then essentially suck us dry of that enormous rush of energy that they're giving us it's, it's kind of goes back to the notion that they're sort of feeding on us yeah. in some sense. Mm. You know that. Um, I, I do actually think that's going on. That this, you know, they're just the, the angle of like a psychic vampire. You know, just um, bleeding you dry. That's why mm -hmm. so many people report this. You know, whether it's the Men in Black, Black Eyed Kids, Shadow People. There's a lot of stories where people just were wiped out. You know, and had no energy, and just looked kind of pale or anemic, and you know, as if something literally was sort of um, taking away their life force. You know, it kind of kind of brings up the question that um, you know, 
let's let's say by us doing this show today, are we <laughs> are we feeding into that that whole energy thing? You know, I I, I don't know. It's it's kind of kind of interesting when you think about it. Though, that um, you know, one thing that one question that came up in my mind while I was reading the book is that you know does publicity feed that whole thing? Does it yeah. does it give them more you know more more energy, more jazz, so to speak? You know, um, by by just creating talk around them and that kind of thing or, or whatever well, the entity is you know, had you considered that I guess you probably have <laughs> yeah of course yeah I actually have I mean it's one of these things where I actually thought about this you know when I was writing the book it was like well just does the fact of writing the book is that going to have some sort of impact on this phenomenon I mean right. yeah the book's only been out sort of a month mm-hmm. uh, but you know that actually did sort of cross my mind and one of the things a lot of people don't know this um but you know in, on may 31st 2014 that was the day where in the city of Waukesha, wisconsin two young girls attacked one of their friends and mm-hmm. um and stabbed her fortunately so she survived but basically they were trying to um, sacrifice her in the name of the slender man um what a lot of people don't know is that the night before may the 30th Coast to Coast had um, an extensive show which covered the whole angle of thought forms and whether or not the Slender Man had become so powerful as a thought form that it was now interacting in the real world. And because Coast to Coast is a late-night show, the episode actually um, continued through the early hours of the 31st, the very day of the attack. And in the show, you know, they were talking about the power of the Slender Man and how if thousands of people are focusing on it, it can be, get stronger and stronger and stronger. And what do we see? That the very next day we have, um, you know, the, the worst part of the Slender Man story, this, you know, this sort of terrible attack on this young girl. And so that in itself, if nothing else, it's a really weird, creepy coincidence that all this mm-hmm. should have been talked about on a show with a massive audience just hours before two girls decided to launch this attack. Maybe if all of our audience members can focus and concentrate really, really super hard on the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters, <laughs> we should see what we could do. He, he can go back to wherever he came from. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting, Nick, you, you talk about the town of Walk, is it Waukesha, I guess? Waukesha, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, it, it occurred to me while I was while you were the case you made for that. There's a lot of weird above and beyond that occurrence with the Slenderman. There's a lot of weird kind of psychic stuff going on around there. Where, where um, in, in a very small area, it seems like. Do, do you think, um, in in some sense, that might be some kind of a portal or or some place where there's less or more connection between some other dimension or something. We've talked about that on other shows. That kind of occurred to me that there's these these, mm. these portals around the world that seem to lend themselves to those kinds of occurrences. Um, I, I don't know whether you had considered that or not. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things uh, about Walkershire is that it does have a pre-existing history of a lot of weird stuff going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that's something that hasn't really been picked up um, you know, and certainly the media didn't pick it up when the attack occurred on the on the girl in 2014, and you know it, it didn't um, obviously have a place in the in the court case or anything like that. 
spots. If you look into the history, you find a lot of weird stuff. I mean, one of the people I interviewed for the book was a guy named Mike Huberty. And Mike um, had an experience with like a tall, skinny, dark figure in in the woods near Walker, well, actually in Walkershire in the 1990s and literally just a couple of miles from where the attack occurred in 2014. Now, Mike's experience occurred in the mid-1990s, so we're talking about 20 years earlier. And there's also an even earlier case than that one, one from 1921, when a young boy was found dead in a pool in Walkershire, again, just a couple of miles from where the attack occurred in 2014. This 1921 case, um, the boy was never actually identified. He was buried in like an unknown grave, so to speak. Um, but a psychic looked into the whole angle of his death and talked about she saw this image of this tall, black, skinny figure in a black suit carrying the boy's body through the woods. And this occurred in 1921. You know, and um, and it's you can find the newspaper stories about it and and pictures of the who they thought the boy might have been. Um, so you know, you have this history going back close to a century of these tall, dangerous, predatory figures in black suits with a tie to sort of death and the paranormal from 1921, from Mike Huberty's case in the mid 90s, right through to the attack in Walkershire in 2014. It's, it's, in other words, the 2014 event was not a solitary event mm-hmm. out of nowhere. You know, there were pre-existing stories of these tall, weird characters lurking in the woods of Walkershire going back decades. Did the, did the Native Americans ever weigh, uh, do you know if they ever weighed in on any of that? Um, in terms of, you know, a lot of times they had those kinds of experiences that may or may not have gotten recorded. I don't, I don't recall whether you talked about that in the book or not. But, yeah, um, the, the, the most famous one that I sort of briefly, or infamous one that I briefly mentioned earlier, was this one that's known as Walking Sam. And mm-hmm. Walking Sam um, pretty much is, is a slender man um, in everything other than the name itself, you know. And most of the sightings of the of this creature, this slender man, uh, known as Walking Sam in Native American law, um, occurred on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Now, between um, 2014 and 2015, on the reservation, um, close to a dozen people, young kids, um, killed themselves. And as incredible as it might, might sound, Almost a hundred attempted suicide, but but failed or didn't go through, you know, fully. Um, you know, maybe kind of like a, you know, a, a cry for help. But what's intriguing is that, as I said, most of these suicides and attempted suicides of young kids all occurred on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which is where most of these stories of um, this walking Sam character um, surface from. So again, you know, you have this other creature, uh, walking Sam, which is very tall, wears dark clothes, uh, you know, danger to children, and sort of, you know, has this. Uh, actually, his face is not dissimilar to the um, to the Slenderman, whereas the Slenderman has a completely blank face. Uh, walking Sam doesn't have a mouth. So you know, there's that crossover as well, where part of the face is missing. 
Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think this is coincidence. You know, Walking Sam, he very much fits the bill of today's Slender Man, and yet the, its origins are completely different. You know, one was something that was already incorporated into Native American law, and the Slender Man was created for the internet, and yet there are such eerie parallels that in some way there has to be, you know, a connection between the two. Sounds like the same ancient evil with different names. And that keeps coming up time and again, that concept of there being an ancient evil that is just grabbing onto... Yeah. I I can't help but want to ask you, Nick, um, have you written everything that there is to say about... Uh, the Slender Man, or is is there still more? Do you still have more material for a second uh, book? Well, I mean, I tried to, in terms of all the different angles, you know, I tried to cover everything from the, you know, the psychological angle, mental illness, obsession, the paranormal, the dream states, you know, the, the matrix angle, the thought forms. I, I, you know, hopefully I covered all the primary areas, you know, from down to earth to you know, the far end of the supernatural. Um, What I would say is that since the book's come out, I mean, I've received a lot of stories from people who talked about their own experiences um, with the Slender Man uh, and some very weird stories. So there's certainly, you know, scope for more to be said in terms of, you know, the witnesses um, and people now coming forward and saying, you know, I thought it was just me, that kind of thing. You know, not realizing that untold numbers of people have actually seen the Slender Man as well. Um, but, you know, I'm sure that there are other theories and ideas, but I hope I've kind of covered most of the concepts, you know. Well, the, the thing I like most about your approach, Nick, is, is the fact that <clears throat> it, it's, it's not didactic. It's not, you know, this is all the stuff that I know about it, this is what you should think. What It seems that, like, what you do is you do a lot of research and you present different possibilities to the reader. And at the end of the day, say so you, you make your choice as to what you think is the best um, well, possibility. I, I and and to me, that's, that's the best approach to, I don't know if you consider what you do, journalism or, or just you know, nonfiction writing or whatever, but I, I do think that that, lets the, that, that gives the reader... Um, a lot of credit for being able to to make that decision yeah, for themselves, yeah. and and I, and I really like that about your writing stuff. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I've always tried to take that approach. I mean, I always tell people when we're dealing with the unexplained, it's called the unexplained for a reason. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we, we know something's going on, but we're not exactly sure. And I kind of think it would be sort of dangerous and reckless for me to sort of demand that people believe this theory against all other theories, because at the end of the day, you know, I do fully believe there is a paranormal aspect to the Slender Man mystery, but, I, you know, if somebody asks me what my position is, admittedly, you know, I cannot say it's just a thought form or it's an ancient archetype come to life or it's something that's strode out of the dream state or something, with, you know, connected with chaos magic i can give the theories and ideas as to why i think all these different angles have varying degrees of validity but for me to sort of stand there you know banging on the table saying you must believe this angle to me Mm -hmm. that's like an irresponsible way of dealing with it and i think the best way is to show the reader what we've got but not force it down their throats that they've got to accept this or that theory 
Mm-hmm. Now, if we've got hard facts, well, that's that's even better. But with a lot of these phenomena, paranormal phenomena, we're still looking at concepts and theories. And I think it's important the reader understands the difference between a theory and what is fact, you know. And sometimes, you know, due to over-enthusiasm or just somebody, because somebody has a specific agenda, you know, they will try and occasionally, you know, demand that you believe this theory or that one. But, you know, for me, that's the wrong path when, you know, we shouldn't be putting an idea into somebody's mind and tell them it's a fact or provable when, you know, we need to say it as it is. These are the theories, these are the ideas, and, you know, let's run with the research, but, you know, we're still sort of, you know, still sort of looking for the definitive answer. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think that's why readers find your, find your book so appealing, because it does allow them to, you know, the ability to make that decision on their own and, and take everything into consideration, which is which is what everybody should do. But like, unfortunately, not all, all writers take that approach. But um, it's funny, one, something that occurred to me as I was reading the book, um, and this is a, maybe slightly off topic, but not really, um, the movie um, Forbidden Planet, I know you've, uh-huh. you've you've written books on on sci-fi movies and things like that. I know Eric's familiar with it, um, but but if you think about that movie, um, and it's, it's branded an old movie now, I think it was made in the fifties. Um, the the thing behind that is the creatures of the creatures of the id or monsters from the id. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen that movie? I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I mean that's a cl- classic example of what can yeah. happen. Where you have exactly. one of the primary characters sort of dreaming, and then the the monsters come to to life. You know, right? It's, it's actually um, monsters from the from the dark part of the of the human consciousness, I guess. Yeah. The, the theory being that there are these, this race of beings, the Krell, that develop the ability to to transport their own monsters, I guess, into reality using this machine and, and the guy on the planet, um, who's Dr. Morbius, by the way. I don't know if that's a resilient movie. I do I think there's a connection. connection. to the Matrix with that or not. Yeah. Uh, but, but that is, is really the essence, I think, of this whole thing, is that, you know, perhaps the Slender Man is coming from our own psyche, you know, coming from our own the dark side of our own psyches, you know, and, and we're bringing it into into bringing it to life, so to speak, I guess. And who knows what the ramifications of that are going to be, just like the monsters from the id. <laughs> they, they, the Krell obviously lost control of it, and, and that was the, the doom of their race, apparently. Yeah. Who knows if that's not going to... <laughs> I'm hoping that's not going to be the doom of our race, but... No, it might be. <laughs> it, 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 we are... Yeah. we With everything that's going on with artificial intelligence and trying to mm-hmm. tap into the mind... Um, and tapping into new energies with infinite power, I there is that that's a cautionary tale. And and by the way, Walt, that movie is a perfect example of of cinema. That it's not it's it's a cl- class. It's a timeless classic. It is. It is. So don't go bad. Don't go. And, it, and, and because it deals with that kind of a morality and issue, the, you know, which which is really. The underlying thread, I think, here for, for your book is that there is a morality issue here, um, uh, in terms of you know how how the internet is misused, and we're seeing that now with Facebook and all that. You know, yeah. I don't want to get political, but with with all these things where the, where the, the internet is truly kind of interloping into our lives, and, and how much <laughs> we're wondering where do we put a stop to that, and maybe the Slender Man is. 
are an example of that that we ought to take note of. No, you're right, and um, you know, and that's one of the interesting things about the whole Slenderman phenomenon. It kind of impacts on a lot of, you know, the way in which the world operates today. You know, it sort of has this yes. massive um, presence on the internet. Um, you have the instant access to material, which I think um, expands the obsession that kids have because there's so much, you know, they can pull up and read at any given time. And you know, the internet also has that aspect of particularly with kids today i think you know they become isolated you know they don't sort of ride their bikes around town like i used to do and we used to do when we were kids you know you know your parents say well you know make sure you're back by the time the sun sets you know <laughs> like nine o'clock at night or yeah. something. Exactly, yeah. that and so yeah, i think with the internet they become like isolated and when you've got isolated kids kids are obsessed with all of this you can see why they're sort of almost like disaster in the wings, you know. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is, the Slender Man in some ways kind of represents that whole... <laughs> that whole it yeah. does, it does. Which, which is why this, is a, to, in, for my money, this is a very important book. You know, it's a, it's a good read, it's very entertaining, but it, but it's also got a layer underneath it that, that really resonates, resonated with me in terms of a sort of morality that's in question. You know, that what what's going on here, you know. And, to me, that's what makes that elevates a book from good to great, and, and I think that's what your book is. Well, that brings up the final topic um, um, for this episode: is your next topic or your next project? What What is Nick Redfern working on next? Well, funnily enough, um, on June the first, I'll have my uh, fifth book out on the Men in Black. Oh, right. <laughs> so many, many. <laughs> now, but what's even kind of more synchronistic is in September, I've got a book uh, through Visible Ink, excuse me, through um, Llewellyn Books um, called Paranormal Parasites, which is actually all about this issue of energy eating entities that prey on us. And so it covers everything like the shadow people, the black eyed children, there's a little bit on the slender man, and other entities who are hungry ghosts and things like that. So it deals with sort of a whole range of weird creatures that reportedly feed on us for energy. So that Are you going to put the archons in there, Nick? <laughs> um, well, I would, but unfortunately that book was actually finished. The writing was finished like about four or five months ago. But oh, oh so you're, you're done with that already. That's not yeah. So that's, yeah. that's, in the, that's already in the pipeline. Yeah. yeah okay. So, uh, well, you might want to think about an entire book about the archons. That might... Yeah, I'm, I'm not trying to push the archives down your throat. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's a cool idea. Yeah, you are. <laughs> well, you're right. That is a fascinating area. You know, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess we're getting ready to wind down here. But um, anyway, I just want to thank you for coming on, Nick. And I hope you will consider coming back, uh, you know, maybe when your next book comes out or, or whenever you, you want to. You're welcome. Um yeah, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, I'll be pleased to be on again. Thanks. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. Well, are, are you still Are you still on Facebook, or are you uh, done with that? Or Facebook? No, no, I'm on Facebook every day. Yeah. Oh, you are. Okay, I haven't seen anything on there for me for a while. Yes, because he's but, busy. So we'll, we'll get this out. Um, I guess probably by the weekend. Eric, yeah, we'll definitely uh, get we'll definitely get this out. Um, I um the last weekend le- the and, last and weekend of March. The last weekend of March. World of the internet. And I'm sure we'll get a lot of a lot of listeners. And I also plan on putting a very glowing review on Amazon for the book. 
Yeah. Oh, cool. Thanks. We're both, uh, Walt and I are both finishing up our reviews of the book, and we're going to have that on our website, um, themetaphysicalpodcast.com and thefedorachronicles.com on both websites now. Um, But I will just, just as like one caveat, you are not going to put, you are not going to want to put this book down once you start reading it. Um, It is, it's one of those, whereas um, it's like a, like, um, the first book of Nick's that I read that was um, simply phenomenon, uh, phenomenal, uh, uh, Pyramids in the Pentagon, which really sort of changed the way that I look at the paranormal and our government and how they handle it. And wouldn't you know it, um, this past autumn, there was a series of articles in the Washington Post and the New York Times about a secret program within the Pentagon researching the paranormal pretty much just like what Nick had said was going on um, in in that book. And he just keeps getting better and better. Uh, Nick, do you have any other final words to leave us with? Um, well, you know, I mean, as I said, I do believe there's a real, genuine, supernatural world. And I think, you know, like the real world, it can, you know, there are positive entities and there are negative entities. And I think it's an area it's fascinating or I wouldn't do what I do but you know even I've sort of come to realize the hazards in the in investigating this as well as the you know the, the pro side of it so um, yeah if people are interested in all this that's great but just sort of tread carefully as well you know thank you one so thing, one thing I wanted one final thought I wanted to put in here is that I, I, real, I really think the book raises the level of discourse on the Slender Man topic um, I, th- I think it elevates it to, 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 yeah. to, to a higher degree, yeah. which, which I think what you're probably always striving for. So you, you, you did it with us one, Nick. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> All right. Okay, I guess we're going to wrap up. And thanks again, Nick, for, for agreeing to, to talk with us. And it was, uh, it was a great interview. And we can't wait to All see right, well, you. Thanks again. a lot, guys. And we can't wait to see you again or, or talk to you again. All right, sounds good. All right. Thank you, Nick. Take it easy, Nick. All, All right. right. See you later, guys. This has been the Metaphysical Connection podcast from the Fedora Chronicles Network. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, Google Play, or Player FM. You can find our podcast via your Apple, Android, or Windows devices using those services and more. If your favorite podcast service or program doesn't feature us, let us know by shooting us an email via info at thefedorachronicles.com. That's also a great way to get in touch with Walt, Jim, and Eric, and let us know what you think of the podcast, as well as topic suggestions for a future show. If we use your suggestion, we'll send you a t-shirt or coffee mug. Just send along your size and preference with your email. You can be a part of the metaphysical connection between shows by joining us on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook by going to our metaphysical connection group and following us on Twitter at physics laxative. Most importantly, you can support the show by hitting the Patreon button on all of our show pages, metaphysicalpodcast.com. Patreons of the show get specials such as getting the podcast a day before the rest of the audience, heads up about future episodes and other exclusives. Want some Metaphysical Connection swag of your own? Get your own damn Metaphysical Connection coffee mugs, t-shirts, keychains, and barbecue aprons at our Zazzle page. My house is full of them. Yours should be too. Find them at www.zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Don't forget to check out our show sponsor, the Trinity Whip Company. Traditionally made kangaroo whips, top quality craftsmanship, 
in form as well as function. Handcrafted by Blake Brunning. Find his products at www.trinitywhipco.com. So for Walt, Jim, and Eric, this is Carol Fisk thanking you for listening and signing off. Until next time, keep your chin up and your bra, excuse me, fedora on. <laughs>